0: And to Authors on the Air. I'm your host, Pam Stack. We're proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I want to remind writers that the first Monday of every month, you are welcome to call into the show if you have a book releasing in that month. So November 4th is first Monday. Uh, if you have a book releasing in November, please feel free to call into the studio. I've left it on my Facebook page. You can pimp your book for three minutes on the show live. Okay, today um, I am celebrating a bunch of birthdays this, this week. I'm not even going to shout them out, and it's mine too, so I booked myself a special guest today, author Tim Molini, who has a very witty way of writing crime fiction. It's kind of funny. But it's kind of serious, but it doesn't sacrifice anything to the story. So Tim wrote to me and asked if he could come on the show. We have a mutual friend who does another podcast, Frank Severo. And we called and chatted, and I thought, Tim's going to be my birthday present to me. So here he is, author Tim Molini. Hi, Tim.
1: Hi, Pam. Happy birthday.
0: (laughs) It's not till Saturday, but thank you. You're my birthday present. I the whole week. That's what I think. I've been getting, like, offers of dessert from all the local restaurants that I go to. Here's your birthday dessert. And I'm not a sweet lover, so I'm like, where's the beef, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I want food. I don't want a dessert. Why not? You're crying out loud. No. I want real food. Give me a hamburger or something. No, no. It's fine. I I don't need to eat any of that stuff. Welcome to Authors on the Air, Tim. Um, You have a new book out called Boxing the Octopus. Now, I have to say, when I saw that title, it just gave me the giggles because the octopus is my most favorite ever sea creature. It is the smartest thing in the water. Don't you agree?
1: Absolutely. I am mesmerized by these creatures. I um, had the idea for this book and always was fascinated by nefarious sea creatures and uh, Mm -hmm. creatures of the deep that could do us harm but seem smarter than us. And I grew up on you know, the Kraken and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And yep. when I started writing this book, I realized there had to be an octopus in it. And the more I did the research, I found out they have nine brains, one for the head and one for each arm. They have three hearts. They have blue blood. They can regrow limbs if they get cut off. It's absolutely fascinating. So I had to it make is. one of the characters in the book an octopus.
0: And they're very, very smart. I watched a documentary where they had um, tanks of octopus next to each other, and one would literally crawl out and jump in the tank with the other one. They can fit in the funkiest spaces. Now, I have cats, as you know, and my cats will, you know, if I if it fits, I sit. That's pretty much their thing. <laughs> it doesn't matter if it's a bowl, a box, the sink, whatever. But octopus do the same thing. If they um, – They can kind of conform their shape to anything, can't they?
1: Yeah, an octopus that is bigger than, say, your dining room table can squeeze into the size of, you know, a a volleyball or a softball and squeeze through the smallest crevices and the smallest reef or rocks.
0: It's just amazing. And uh,
1: they can get really large. They can change color instantaneously, like within, you know, milliseconds, and even mimic the texture of something they're close to in order to disguise themselves. Uh, it's it's like an alien intelligence. They're they're really really fascinating.
0: Uh, they really and, are. In the, and,
1: yeah, and uh, part of the part of the book, um, one of the venues is is a large aquarium where there happens to be a giant Pacific octopus. So, as I was getting into the story, by the end of the book, I realized I had to start writing a few chapters from the octopus's point of view.
0: <laughs> there you go. And there's that wit. Let's talk about the book first of all. Um, how in the world did you ever come up with this? It's it's just such an interesting book, and it's still crime fiction, but and it's got to – you know I mean it's funny, but there's some serious stuff in there. So let's talk about it.
1: Sure. So the plot for me, I always think of the mysteries as. as Dead serious, you know. I, I think you're writing crime fiction, and if you read, you know, Elmore Leonard or Carl hyacin or, or the, right. you know, great Donald Westlake, the, the right. characters in those books, everything is deadly serious for them. It's literally life and death. Uh, right. there's, there might be a heist gone wrong, there might be a murder, there might be all of those things, mm. and the characters in the book are in these incredibly stressful, horrible situations, but. Things go wrong because people do stupid things. People make mistakes. A lot of criminals are not rocket scientists. And in that, I think, is where the humor comes from. So yes. I think like a lot of, you know, our favorite comedy shows, the best funny movies, especially if they have a darker insight into into, uh, you know, the human uh, condition. Think about the yes. Coen brothers, uh, you know, th- that comes out of stress and they're writing it and playing it straight. Um, I think the reason a lot of sitcoms aren't funny is they're trying to be funny. So I don't actually right. think of the books as funny, but they end up that way because I have a apparently a perverse instinct for things going horribly wrong and the plots keep going sideways and then sideways again as they end.
0: Well, I think you're right that, you know, like you said earlier, most criminals are not rocket scientists. And sure enough, um, <laughs> you yeah, know, this is going to sound really stupid, but it was really serious. There was a huge. Um, marine life bust here in Southwest Florida a couple weeks ago, and um, the the guys were stealing baby tortoises and turtles, and had been busted before when the girlfriend of one of the guys had a baby alligator shoved down her shorts when they were pulled over by the police. Now, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, exactly. So, like, you know, people, that's a very bad a moment thing of to be stress, right? Yeah, they're they're doing stupid things. It's a funny story, but there's it's a deadly serious story because you know poaching and selling our marine wildlife is horrible. So um right. and to and I'm thinking, you know, they have a video of her yanking this alligator out of the front of her shorts, a baby alligator, and I'm thinking this can't be real, but it is because people are stupid
1: you know exactly and and you know even the even the master criminals you know it's it's always a question of uh people with kind of a common goal but competing agendas so in this book yes. i mean the book opens with what's fundamentally an armored car heist there's a there's right. a, a place in san francisco pier 39 that's one of the most visited tourist destinations in the world
0: and it's actually the, been there the pier- yes yeah
1: yes. right so it's 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 grand central for all the tourist traps you could possibly imagine from the yes. stores to the attractions and parts of it because of the local flavor are charming and the aquarium is great. There's a bunch of cool stuff there, but it's truly built to attract and hold on to tourists, you know, like flypaper and get all their money before they can and leave the look. city. And if you look at the amount of cash going through there and the way it's set up years ago, uh, when I was, I was researching, my next book, I walked along the, the pier there and I noticed a, an armored car and there are these uh, roads that go behind the pier and that's where the armored cars go to collect mm-hmm. all the cash from the different businesses. And I thought this would just be a great scene for an armored car heist. And at the beginning of the book, an armored car runs off the pier and sinks to the bottom of San Francisco Bay. And when they recover it, all the money's gone. And what that leads to is an investigation on a peer that leads into a bigger conspiracy around money laundering but then an even bigger conspiracy still and i think if you look at the bigger crimes that are happening in the world they're always tied to something that gets you to something local and something smaller yes. and something a little more yes. petty and all it takes is one or two people in the mix saying i want to skim a little off the top or maybe this will be my operation next week and i'll knock off this other guy and then the whole thing goes sideways, and then the whole thing gets exposed. And right. I was kind of fascinated by that, of this being kind of the tip of the iceberg. And I also thought what a great place to bring together some truly bizarre characters that uh, had nothing in common except their their shared greed. And uh, by the end of the book, I really became rather fond of them, even some of the folks that might have more uh, sociopathic tendencies.
0: Yep. Well, uh, people who are sociopaths are really interesting people because they never just quite realize how horrible they are and they're, they can be very cunning. They can be very cunning. And, um, but at the same time, some of them are quite charming. So, uh, it's, it's an interesting dichotomy going on there. Um, you are kind of famous for having a sense of humor in your crime fiction. So, um, Tell me about why you write, Tim. And here's the thing I don't mean you write because you have to, but what do you get out of writing? And what do you want a reader to get out of your writing? I think a lot of writers, especially
1: mystery writers, are writing the books that they love to read, right? They were so inspired and so taken away or were able to escape by diving into something, whether, it's, you know, Sherlock Holmes or Michael Connolly or, right. you know, an Elmore Leonard. And part of it is telling yourself a story and that that challenge of what happens next or thinking about a locked room puzzle and trying to get yourself out of it. And I think getting lost in that is there's nothing like it. I think I think it's um, it, I, I think The writers who I know and admire would do that and tell themselves stories even if they weren't behind a keyboard. Uh, And I think part of what you get out of it is it it changes the way you look at the world. I I think in a way, yes, we're in the entertainment business, but it it unlocks a certain amount of uh, empathy as well. And I think people connect with each other through books in a way that is unlike anything else. I think if you can talk to somebody about a book you've both read... And share that with somebody or say, I just read this and I loved it. Or if you're the writer and you get a letter from someone who read your book and said that, you know, that was the best beach read I ever had or that inspired me to finish my own book or I shared that with my friend and they loved it. That's an unbelievable human connection, and I think it just opens up new ways to uh, to, to to reach people. And it's also a great way to kind of organize the way you look at the world, like the best crime fiction is filled with social commentary and observational humor and kind of deep analysis of not just you know the human condition, but corruption, hypocrisy, everything in society that the news tries to talk about, but we rarely hear because it's all just shouting.
0: It's interesting you should say that because I'm reading two very different books. One of them is by Nelson DeMille that he co-authored with his son Alex DeMille, and it is a new book called The Deserter um the demills will be my guest in, in november to talk about this book it is a deadly serious book however there is enough snark in it to make it not um me dread reading it. it it's just nelson DeMille has a very you know unique way of writing similar to you that um he takes a very stressful situation and his characters deal with it with a little bit of black humor, kind of like being a cop, I think, you know, when you see such tragedy, such tragedy all the time. The other book I'm reading is about, um, a, a super drone. And, um, it's written by a guy who generally does military romance. And that book also has a lot of snark in it, even though it's deadly serious. It is, um, about technology. And also, I think you're right. It, it, at least for me, because I love to read so much, when I get to speak to to writers like you, I feel even more invested in the book that I'm reading. And I love to be yeah, around absolutely. book readers.
1: Yeah. I also I also think you nailed it. I, for me the humor is you know, twofold. Um, I, I went to a reading the other day with uh, John Connolly, and uh, yes, wanted to hear him talk about his latest book. And and you know, his books are unbelievably vivid and very dark. Yes. But yes. But in his talk to to the audience, he mentioned, uh, you know, the the reality that he's he's very aware that a big part of his job as an author is to entertain. And right. I think there's different forms of entertainment. You know, you can get people lost in the historical vividness of a of a of a period piece novel. You can you can uh, scare the hell out of people in you know in a book. and sure. that's, a, that's a different kind of escape. Like in my case, I think the humor is, is twofold. One, uh, again, those are the books I love to read. They're you know whether it's uh, the Irish writer Declan Burke or uh you know, somebody like even Ross McDonald, the classic noir right. writer who yeah. had that snark in it.
0: It Absolutely. those smiles,
1: that that dark humor, uh, that is is it makes harder subjects more accessible. You can get closer to it and look at yes. it and deconstruct it in a in a very observational, even, you know, apolitical way. Uh, yes. and it brings you closer to it. So I think in a way, from a writing standpoint for me, it lets you get closer to tougher subject matter, uh, it makes complicated subjects more entertaining and accessible, and also it's a hell of a lot more fun. Like for me, there's enough. I yeah. live in New York City right now. I used to live in San Francisco. There's enough day-to-day stuff coming at you and stress that when I pick up a book to escape, I'd like to. I'd like to smile. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd like to. Uh, uh, that's more likely going to get my attention and, and make me want to share it. So I think again, you you write what you love to read
0: yeah i and you know I love to read everything except for horror um and I don't like cartel books because I'm from Miami and you know that was the city of the original cocaine cowboy. remember shootouts at the mall close to where oh, you yeah. live, and when the FBI agents were killed in sunnyland and and so on, so I think it's a particularly brutal crime to be writing, a genre to be writing in. And there's nothing humorous at all, nothing, in any of the cartel books I've ever read. So I try to stay away from those. But I do like reading across genres too because a lot of people dis-romance writers, but they also are on the scene of social commentary in ways that nobody else can, can be. So I appreciate that. And I suspect, like I... Compare your writing to Elmore Leonard, who I just loved. He was my favorite, favorite, favorite mystery writer when I was younger. I used to love reading Great. all his books. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, I, and, and you know, people who who remember um, Get Shorty, the movie, don't realize that the book wasn't quite as funny, although it was snarky, as the movie. You know, it's it's played that way as kind of a comedy, even though it really wasn't. The book wasn't. But it was funny. That's right. Yeah. And it it, it is.
1: It's funny. And I think that comes a lot from surprise and, and again, the abruptness of it. And, and you're so shocked that that's a, that's a natural reaction. And, you know, there's a, a a shock and horror to it, but it's, it's, you know, that's, it's those twists that make you smile and, and also make you relate to it. Like for me, part of the laughter comes from, you could see yourself doing something that's stupid, or you could see yourself fumbling that ball at that critical moment. and then you know, oh my God, we're all going to jail. And uh, there's something about that. And I think like when, you know, back to what you're saying about romance writers, what's interesting about that too is I think, and I've I've talked to other mystery writers about this, all great books and and all books that that strike a chord with you are really about the characters and they're really about relationships. And I think mysteries and crime novels often, people talk about the plotting and obviously the plotting and the mystery and placing the clues and all that is the engineering of it. But the plot is driven by character, not the other way around. Yes. And once you know those characters, really what you're doing is setting those characters up for beautiful collisions. You're just putting them in motion and looking for those interactions to happen. And that's what's going to drive the plot. And you hear writers say, I don't really know where this is going next. I think there's some truth in that. You want to write organically.
0: Well, let me me ask you this, a couple of things. One, you know, if if you write organically, can you still outline? And two, in your case, what comes first, the character or the plot?
1: I'll answer the second question first. So for me, it's less the plot first, but I do usually have a triggering event in mind. I I have Mm -hmm. something in mind like, you know, what if this person fell off this bridge or what if this armored car – got jacked or what if in fact this place wasn't what you think it is, but was, you know, the tip of this giant iceberg of a conspiracy, that kind of thing. And then you start asking yourself questions and all that. So that's usually sets the, the premise in motion. And then after that, I jump right to character and I start thinking about who would populate that world, who would be involved in that. And you branch off of that. And it's very much from a character standpoint, the outline question is fascinating because in uh, the mystery world, it's – I want to say like two-thirds, one-third don't outline to those who do. Maybe it's 50-50, um, but a lot of the writers – I realized after I was a couple of books in that the writers I most liked to read and that my writing was most often compared to, none of them outlined. And uh, I start writing organically and I get about a third of the way into the story, and I have a sense by that point of what the trajectory of the plot is. In other words, how it's gonna end, if not how you're Mm -hmm. gonna get there. And Mm -hmm. then I stop, and I do almost a retroactive outline or kind of a map to get the rhythms of the character appearances, the voices, and the scenes and all that. Because I write, I tend to write uh, multiple points of view interlocking in, in kind of third person close. So for me, that retroactive outline helps me not forget anybody and make sure the rhythm of the of the voices is right. Uh, but I don't do it at the beginning. Um, I, I've heard that a number of thriller writers, you know, classic spy international thrillers, are more judicious about their outlines. But I think a lot of the capers, a lot of the uh, comedic thrillers, uh, those tend to be written a little bit more seat of the pants. <laughs>
0: So let me ask you this. When you're writing, what if you have like the blockbuster ending? It comes to you while you're in your first three chapters. It is a blockbuster ending. That's exactly where you want your book to go. Do you write that chapter, that blockbuster ending?
1: I don't write the whole chapter, but I keep it in my – it's it's funny you ask that because in this case, there's a couple of scenes at the end of this book that – I knew early on needed to happen and I was convinced one of them was the ending and I kept it in my head and I made notes on it, but I did not write the whole chapter. I find I'm a bit of a binge writer. So I find that once I'm in the chapter, I want to force myself to go back and, and write them in the order that they should occur. Otherwise I'll start skipping around and get a little lazy. You know, it's, it's, it's too easy to get yourself distracted, but I will make notes on it and I'll just, keep going back to that scene. And in some cases, if it's a blockbuster ending um, in, in the way you, you probably mean in, in terms of, you know, a lot of people converging on one scene and, and a well, lot just, of action in that. An, I'll, the I'll, unexpected I'll ending pictures. that,
0: yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, Yeah, I'll,
1: I'll, I'll, I'll sketch things out. And so it's both a combination of notes and little drawings about where things are going to be and all of that just so I, so I know what I'm writing to. Uh, so it's kind of a goal and that's the incentive to get through the middle of the book, right. To make it as, as fast and, and, uh, as, as rapidly paced as you want the ending to
0: be. So if you find this really killer ending, you have it in your head. What if as you're writing along, your book isn't going in that direction? What do you do?
1: You cry, you curl into a ball, uh, (laughs)
0: <laughs> you call a
1: therapist you try you try to get the windows in your manhattan apartment open um i think coming off of that you uh you know you have a couple of choices i think everybody takes detours in their novels right. and you know i think at the extreme you say okay that might be a brilliant ending for another book but not this one and you have to let the you i personally think you have to let the characters drive and if the characters Aren't headed there, and that doesn't sound true for what you've got on the front end. You know, you have three scenarios in that case. All of them hard decisions. You scrap everything right. you've written up till then and say, "Damn it, I want to write the book that leads to that ending because there's something beautiful about that ending." Or you right. say, "The book I'm writing now right now, which I have a lot of heart for, isn't going to end that way because that's going to feel, you know, that's a that's a that sounds like a bullshit Hollywood ending slapped on the end right. of something that is not really that." Right. Uh Or you find the detours that get you there. Like even in this book, in Boxing the Octopus, there's a fairly pivotal and I'll call it an action-packed scene towards the end of the book. It's it's damn near the end. Originally, it was going to be right at the end, and I was stuck for several weeks knowing that had to happen and not sure how to get there. And then one day – as I was waking up, I thought, "Well, hell, just let that happen now. Well, it, it, just make it happen right now." And I put it earlier in the book than I expected, and that opened up a whole host of possibilities about how I got there really? and what happened afterwards. Yeah, so that was kind of a, a in, you know, I guess I'm boomeranging back to your question. That I gave myself permission to write it sooner and realized it wasn't the ending after all. It was. It was a fun scene, but there was other stuff that needed to be done, and I think that's why I was stuck.
0: You know, um, that's like a really great double tap for me. When I'm reading a book that, and it feels like the ending and then, surprise, there's a, just a little bit more to go, then yeah. – either one of two things is going to happen for me. I'm going to put that book down and wait till the next morning to read it cuz I read 500 books a year. So obviously I'm reading more than a book a day. But um but but also don't forget I have no social life and I don't own a TV and I'm owned by five cats. So you know I have plenty of time to read. But um <laughs> but when I'm reading a book that's that good and I think oh my god this this is Oh, I can't believe this is happening! And then it's not the ending that I want to savor that moment. I want to hang on to that, so I'll close the book and wait till the next morning. And even if it's ten pages left or five pages left in the book, that's what I do. I love that. Oh, that's because fantastic. It, because because then you get you get this really great sense. It's a double tap. I don't know how else to explain it. You get
1: yeah, no, this exactly. really
0: great it's, feeling twice, and you don't expect that. It, so those, to me, pack a wallop. I like those books. You know, that's the and book you look that at I'm it gonna, in an
1: entirely different context.
0: You absolutely sorry, do. I, and
1: yeah, it changes the, the context. Book, like in, in,
0: in that's this the case. book I'm going to read again, Tim. That's the book I'm going to read twice or three times or once a year and and i have books like that that are so they feel so powerful to me that i want to read them again just to remind myself how good they were
1: i couldn't agree more i i and i love the way you described it um there's you know a handful of books and films that do that and it's it's yes. like a faint and uh it 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 turns and turns again and actually yep. you know in 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 this book in in octopus there's a framing of the plot and an occurrence at the end of the book after the end of the primary plot right that had occurred earlier and my editor Barbara Peters who's a legend uh, had this great suggestion she said these two scenes put them at the front and the back of the book because it'll be more cinematic and put it in a bigger context it'll it'll reveal this you know you think it's this conspiracy on top of this cons- conspiracy but maybe right. there's even a third and, and that changed the way I thought about the, uh, uh, the book and the ending. I um, uh, gave myself permission yeah. to open things up at the back end.
0: It's like watching a flower open, and you think it's already opened all the way, especially a rose or something. And then you just wait another day, and you give it some more fresh water, and the rose opens up a little bit more. And so to me, that's a powerful book. It's, a, it, it's what makes me want to go and read a backlist. Which, which I have been known to do. You know, I've been known to go and buy every single book. Let's say this is the first Tim Molini book that I've read. So I'm probably going to go back and now buy every other one of your books, even if they're standalones, I'll still read them in order because I like to see the progression of the writing and how it changes. And, and then it leads me right up to where you are in your writing career. So let me, with that, having said that, when you look back at book number one and now look back at Boxing the Octopus, how do you see your writing? Has it changed? Are you happy with it? Have, have you? I know you've learned more, obviously, but tell me how you, what, what you look at your writing and think about your writing career as a writer.
1: For, sure. First of all, I do that as well. I, I heard that most yeah. people discover crime writers four or five or even six books in. And then yep. for me, that's exactly right. I find somebody I love, I go back and I read everything they wrote, and then I read exactly. the new stuff that I haven't read. I found them yep. in the middle and I'll read you know every book and I, I will binge read those, those books. In my case, um, I had written uh, sh- short stories, uh, mystery mm-hmm. uh, short stories, and um, those were getting some attention and, and were getting picked for various anthologies. And I was trying to work out how to write a novel and stealing the dragon was my first novel and it and it got picked up and got really um uh, wonderful reviews because people seemed to like what i was doing with the genre and 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 the way it was kind of a mashup of, of different subgenres i guess in the in the mystery world and mm-hmm. i look back at that book and um you know i am i re- it's funny you ask cuz i i looked at it again as it was as as i was writing this most recent one And I'm really happy with what I did with the characters and establishing the characters and the voices, uh, especially considering when I look back versus what I know now, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And I was working through it chapter by chapter, you know, skinning your Mm -hmm. knees and and scraping your elbows as you go. Uh, And I think the key to being a successful writer, especially in something that demands the pacing and plotting of crime fiction, is you have to get to become a really good self-editor, and the way I write now is completely different just because I've learned so much about how to get out of sure. the own way, where to take the words out and all that. So I look at that first book, and I'm very happy with how it turned out, but getting there took so many different drafts and learning how to spot, you know, where, where are you going on too long? How long uh, does this passage need to be? Do I need that much exposition? Right. That kind of thing. Um, because of what I had read uh, and what I admired in other writers, I, I had an instinct for dialogue. I was more comfortable writing dialogue, I think, than most writers and um, worked really hard at the descriptions. It's the Elmore Leonard thing of leave out the parts that most people tend to skip and, uh, you know, only have enough description that the rest the reader can imagine in their head. Right. So I kind of right. focused on on what I think were my strengths. And that helped me. Uh, carry the plot, and, and it it also, without realizing how important it is to nail down the characters as a first time novelist, uh, um, because of the short story background, I thought of every chapter as its own little short story with its own narrative arc. So
0: that's a so great idea. Yeah, I love were that. Really
1: tight. So that, yeah. I think, is something sometimes you read novelists and then you go back and your four bu- books in the past, and the books feel a little slower and a little more you know, drawn out for me, I already had the discipline of, of doing a lot in very few pages and I wanted the chapters to be short. So that helped a lot. Um, The big breakthrough for me was with, uh, my fourth book was a standalone called jump. And it was uh, Mm -hmm. um, described as a, as a mashup of Agatha Christie, uh, Elmore Leonard and Monty Python, which I thought was the nicest compliment, you know, I'm likely to get uh, in my lifetime. And, and that opened things up for me as a writer when you ask about how has it progressed and what I've done differently because I kind of gave myself permission to, if it goes off in your head, just write it down. And if that sounds outlandish or silly or upside down, just write it down. Just put it down there. Don't worry so much about the conventions of the genre and uh, just kind of go for it. And the other thing is it had an interlocking narrative from 10 different points of view. So every – Chapter ends from one person's POV. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and the next one opens with almost matching dialogue from a different point of view more fabulous. like jump cuts in a movie, right? Okay. I just so went and bought that the book, is-
0: by the way. I just went and bought it. It's oh. a Sam McGowan adventure. So I just bought it. I want you to know you have another sale on that. Because, oh, thank you. Because, Fantastic. because it's, it sounds so great to me that that's what I I want to read it now. So um, thank you. I've already started so, on my road back with you. I'm, I have to go back now and start from the beginning. I want to interrupt you because it's- you mentioned something about, you know, Write down whatever comes into your head. It, it's interesting that I have heard that process described as a first draft process akin to throwing up words on the page. You just That's <laughs> the first draft. You just throw out the words there. You're throwing them out on the page, and then you can figure it out on your next round of, of edits. So my question to you is, how many times do you go through the draft? How many drafts do you have before you say, this is enough? And how do you know? uh, Do you put it down? Do you walk away? Do you ask some, you know, a trusted first reader? What's, how does that happen?
1: A a terrific writer of uh, legal thrillers, John Lesquois, uh, who's, you know, a best selling author. My
0: friend. Uh, He always
1: talks about, um, and I love his writing and and he's he's an amazing talent and uh he is a great an human amazing being. human and being
0: he, he really is
1: amazing human being and he um, he talks about genius mode and idiot mode, which which I love as a description and genius mode <laughs> is you're behind the keyboard, and you're a goddamn genius, and you're the best writer for Shakespeare, <laughs> and everything coming out of your fingers is sheer poetry, and this is just brilliant right. and then the next day or later that day, whenever you edit, you look at what was written. And you say, "What idiot wrote this you know what 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 moron put these words on the page?" and I think uh-huh. that's the discipline. I think that is the uh and I know some writers who literally don't look at their first draft until it is done. they just keep moving forward and they just keep writing and then some writers will obsess about every single chapter until it's a perfectly polished you know yes. apple, and then they move on to the next one um, I'm sort of in in between in that i uh, at this point have an instinct for how the story is going to be told and I do let the voices, the the dialogue often carry a lot of the narrative and I can get through that chapter fairly quickly. The next day before I start writing the the, the following chapter, I give it a quick pass through and that's obvious stuff like redundant words, shortening certain sections and cutting words out but I don't obsess over it. It's
0: just, it's it just kind of a gets trimming. But it gets you in the mood to yeah. write the next, doesn't it, to write the next one or to remember where you left off and where your story is going?
1: That's exactly right. It's literally – it's almost a uh, – it's like an editorial glance to sure. make some cutting and then get on the balls of your feet and jump into the next chapter. So it's, it's kind of a step back, the spring forward type approach. And I do that, and then when the first draft is done – uh, after that, typically then, then I'll, you know, take a, 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 closer look at everything from, from front to back. Uh, and then the third path, I kind of jump around. There's certain chapters that by then I know are pretty critical. Like you really need to nail this chapter and this is a really important scene and I'll obsess about those. Some of those I'll rewrite, you know, a dozen times and wow. it's, it's not moving all the furniture around, but just sharpening certain things because you know that that's just a a pivotal thing for you.
0: So you mentioned that that you like to write dialogue, and I think you're right. A lot of writers don't. As a matter of fact, Shannon Kirk was on last week, and she said she hates writing dialogue. She avoids it whenever she is possible. She will do anything to avoid dialogue. I, on the other hand, am a dialogue lover. I would rather have dialogue because to me – the pace is a lot quicker and I get to know my characters better in the book. Um, If I, if I listen to them talking and there are times when I actually read dialogue out loud because I like the sound of it. I like how it's written. That's us to me. That's a really good writer who can write dialogue. That makes me want to say it out loud because it engages a different part of your brain when you're hearing it versus reading it. So, so kudos to you because I think your dialogue is very is very good. I like it a lot, and it's again when I go back and read this book again next year, I'll I'll know what parts I'm going to be reading out loud again. So kudos Thank you.
1: to you. you. are welcome. It's it's um, it, it's interesting because I think some writers think of dialogue as oh, damn, I have to explain something, or this someone's going to go on and on. Yeah. And we've certainly we've certainly read you know books. I'm sure both of us where nobody would say that nobody talks like that and they're explaining too much and that's too much exposition. And I think if you give yourself permission to just write the way people talk, but then make sure it's action. Dialogue is action. That's movement. Somebody wants something. There's always some play about the dialogue. You're establishing a relationship. You're establishing intimacy. You're holding back a secret. You're deceiving somebody and right. there's as much action in a piece of dialogue as there is in a car chase. You just have to think of it that way. And it's a the way to move along. The, uh, the late uh, Gregory MacDonald, who wrote the Fletch uh, books, um, yes. uh, were, he'd, he'd have entire chapters carried you know, almost all white space oh. and, and dialogue, and right. they just moved. And there's, there's a, a speed with that that I think is really gratifying.
0: Uh, there is one thing, though, I will say about dialogue that makes or breaks a book, and that is – and I have said this often on this show – that I want to be able to read dialogue without Tim said and Pam said. Yes. I want to know the difference between who the characters are just by the words they use, their tone, their the the, the vocabulary, everything. I, if If you can make me read a book and I get through that without saying – well, they sound exactly alike, you know? Or, I don't know any man who's going to say, Oh, you, you know, oh, you look delightful tonight. You know, <laughs> I don't, Guys not so Right, funny. right, right. Hey, you look hot, babe, you know? That's what they say. If I can't <laughs> tell the difference between characters, then that knocks the, it, it's a speed bump for me, you know? And, Completely. and I don't think, and
1: I think that's, yeah. No, I, I think they, I uh, say a, a lot
0: of writers underestimate the intelligence of their reader too. By the, and, and here's the kicker. The fact that we are readers gives us a little bit more IQ than the person who doesn't read. So, so don't insult me and talk down to me in dialogue or anything else. Does that make sense to well, you?
1: Well, I think – yeah, I think what's, what's great about that observation too is you know, dialogue is visual – you want to be able. Elon yes. said, "You want to be able to visualize the people based on how they talk." And I think that was yeah. a brilliant, brilliant piece of advice. And um, I think similarly with descriptions, you could be lazy about it. The reader is going to know you're lazy. Yeah. Attention to detail matters, and what strikes the eye, and what are you trying to do? It's all tiles in a bigger mosaic. I mean, that's the way I, I think about Absolutely. everything. So if it's a physical description of, you know, a, a sign outside a bar. And there's a bit of dialogue there or there's music playing, all of that is setting a mood. And those are the yes. details that that matter. And I, I think you're right. I think readers will get impatient or call bullshit on that and it and suddenly it takes you outside the book. You're not in the book it does. anymore. You're not
0: It does you're not, when I you know, notice things like that, uh, when I notice someone who's describing the sky in every different shade of blue there is, that leads me out of the story. You know, it. And you're right about Leonard saying, "Don't write the stuff that readers don't want, are not going to read." I mean, that's paraphrasing, of course, but but the fact of the matter is, it's true. And damn, I just looked at the clock. I have been taking up so much of your time. We've been on the air for 40 minutes. <laughs> I am so sorry, but it's one of the fa- most of it. fascinating. It's one of the most fascinating conversations I've had with a writer in a long time. I cannot thank you enough for making my birthday interview so special, Tim. Please tell everyone where they can find you on the web.
1: I will. I am at uh, com, which is T I M M A L E E N Y.com. And I look forward to meeting all of you online and in bookstores all across the country. And Pam, I loved every second of this. So
0: thank you, thank you so you. much. And happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tim. Uh, and I want to thank the listeners and thank you, Mom and Dad, for making all this possible. Have a good night, everyone, and I'll see you later. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>